Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. We're off! We're off! We're off! We're off! Like week old sushi, we're off. Hi, my name is Nick. Hi, my name is Nat. And together, together we, we are... are... Nerds! <laughs> <laughs> a couple of nerds. Um, no, I don't think it is nerdy to be uh, fanatical about, um, you know, uh, niche, niche. Ah, oh, fuck it. No, do you know what, though, as well? Because this has been proof this week that, like, when the football's on, all the football people get to be really nerdy about football and it's socially acceptable. <laughs> Yeah, and a, a new hot take that's sweeping the nation is that um, anyone that likes Fast and the Furious films, they're all nerdy. Yeah, they're all jacked up with their uh, uh, muscle vests and muscle cars and uh, muscle shoes. Um, but they're just essentially people that are really into uh, cars and have car you, engines. Have you ever seen a Fast and the Furious film? I've never seen a single Fast and Furious. I was at a party once, I think probably early 2000s. I walked in. I think Too Fast, Too Furious was on the TV, and I walked straight back out again. Um, <laughs> it was, oh, it may be in the first one. I was just absolutely. And then, you know, I, it, it, they weren't, they only started getting good after the fifth one. It was like they kept cranking. They, they, I do know all about them. So the first one was The Fast and the Furious, directed by Rob Cohen, who just I, come off of Stealth. I think he just directed Stealth. Yeah, that's one I've seen. It was Rob Cohen, the same guy that did, what was that, Dragon movie with Sean Connery? Is that Rob Dragon Cohen? Yeah. yeah, that's that's Rob Cohen. And I think he did one of the Pirates of the Caribbean films. I think he did do one, did the most recent one, I think. I think he did, he worked on something like uh hair or he i think he had sort of like a background in quite flamboyant sort of musical type things and okay. then he and then he did um i might be made this might all just be made up bullshit that's a, co- co- a combination of like, can natalie more than ever we need you because <laughs> there's um, that other guy isn't there who just does musicals who's is he called rob someone uh you mean the guy that did chicago exactly and I think he also did a Pirates of the Caribbean film. Um, so the same guy. So um, so now I'm all confused. But anyway, so Rob Cohen did the first one. And then Vin Diesel was like, ah, uh, they offered, Vin, I've just watched a thing about it. They they offered Vin Diesel 25 million. Wow. That can't be wow. No, I reckon it can yeah. be because he's now like the main one, isn't he? He's the main one in them, I think. No, but to do the second one. Oh right, yeah, no, can't be. And he turned and he turned it down to do, I don't know, Triple um, X or Chronicles of Riddick or something. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then, so the, the Too Fast, Too Furious is, um, uh, and Jar Rule is I think is in the first one. And then he turned down the second one. Oh, he fucked around the people, the film company, and so ludicrous took over and now ludicrous is in all of them and he's like multi 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 <laughs> uh you know i guess he was a millionaire anyway i don't know i don't know how i don't know how it works 
I, I feel like I've done all of the same things as these people, and um, I haven't got there. The same money. No. You should you should agree um, to be in a Fast and the Furious film. I should have agreed to be in the second one. When yeah, all that's these, you should have done. When all these clowns were turning it down. But Vin Diesel didn't do the second one. So, okay, so the first one is the Fast and Furious, which was like, I will do a film about drag racing. That's the one I've seen, and I didn't like it. It's the only one yeah. I've seen. And it is about some blokes who like do illegal drag racing and a policeman is infiltrates the drag racing team. And that's all it's about. Yeah, aren't they like knocking off some um aren't they aren't they stealing some knockoff DVDs? I think yeah, that that's it's, it's it's that sort of thing, yeah. And then the second one is Too Fast Too Furious, which is a sequel, but Vin Diesel didn't come back. Then the third one no one came back, and it's Tokyo Drift, and it's got um, the like little from, boy, yeah, from Caleb from yeah. um, American Gothic, uh, American, American Gothic, and then um, and then I think at the end of that, Vin Diesel does a cameo, and then they do uh, Fast and Furious. Oh, was it called Fast Fast? Yeah, Fast Furious, Fast and Furious. It's called Fast and Furious, and then they did, uh, and and then they were like, right, and then they got another, one. and then they start like bringing in people, and then they did Furious Five, which, you know, has got all of the boys Fast back. Five apparently. What did I say? Furious Five. Yeah. Furious Five's better, but I think that that is actually uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Mm. Um, so Fast Five, and then um, they did okay, and I think that's where. Um, uh, uh, Jason Statham turns up and um, Dwayne Johnson. And right. then they do the sixth one. Don't know what that's called. Then they do the Fate and the Fury, Fast and, Fast and Furious 6. Okay. And then they Makes do sense. the seventh one, which I think is called The Fate of the Furious. Yeah. Or Furious, Furious 7. 7. Just Furious 7. Fine. So not Fast 5, it's Furious 7. And then what? Then it's The Fate of the Furious? Now, is Hobson Shaw a uh, spin-off? Fast, it's a spin-off, but is it a Fast and Furious? Is it counted within the 10? Or is it a spin-off? So there's 11. And the 10th one is just coming out in the film, now, in the cinema now, right? So um, so it's sort of like... And then it turns out that the Tokyo Drift, the third one, is a prequel. Um, so that explains why none of the cast are in it. And um, yes, it's oh, I, I I I imagine it's less complicated when you're watching them. But um, um, they uh, literally, when you're four films in, and when the fifth one comes out, and then people start saying, "Oh, this one's actually good," and then um, yeah, and it just feels like there felt like there was a lot of homework. And unless I'd done the four and then the fifth one when the fifth one came out. I feel like I just, do you know what I mean? Because there's a tenth mm. one, and there's a tenth one in the cinema now. And my, um, uh, you know, my in, initial instinct was great. I'll watch all of them. I'll do like a Fast and Furious marathon, and then I'll watch, and then and then I'll watch the tenth one at the cinema, and then we can talk about it. But every time I've thought that, the very next thing I've thought is I don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, and I also think that by the time you get through the other nine, maybe ten, including Hobbs and Shaw, by the time you got through them, 
it's not going to be in the cinema anymore, right? It's like, I, unless you just like punish yourself, you can't do one a week. You've got to be doing like one a night. Mm. Oh, that I don't even drive. Do you know what I mean? I like, I, I don't, I don't know. It like, yeah, it doesn't. It's never, it's never grabbed me until it was too late. There's a lot of people in it that I like. Kurt Russell's in one. Charlize Theron is in one. Um, maybe two. Um, <laughs> I like. I kind of like um, The Rock uh, more than his films. <laughs> I think, you know, we went to see Skyscraper. Yeah. The, yeah. The Rock is the Rock is always of a standard. And you yeah. go, great. And, he, and he's often the best thing in the film. But that means a lot of the films that he makes are absolutely terrible. So being the best thing in a terrible film, they still make money. But like, I don't know. So, oh, and Jason Statham as well. I haven't seen. So, if I was going to watch all the Jason Statham films, you'd have to eventually watch whatever Fast and. The, it, you know, she said it counts as a spin-off of Fast and Furious. Hobson Shaw. Yeah, sure it does. But like, how many Fast and you can hear the conversation we're having, Natalie. We know very little <laughs> details, and you're only filling in stuff that we kind of have already. Anyway. Well, I've seen like the first one was no good either. It was like a bad movie, and I didn't ever want to watch it. Uh, like when the rest started coming out, I was like, not interested, not interested. And then it now it feels like they're the biggest films on the planet, and it's like I don't have any, I don't have any stake in them at all. I've just got like no. But they've been going twenty years. It's, they've been going long enough for you to have nostalgia for them. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's what they're sort of. I don't know. I think it's nice the fact that there's a franchise out there that took them five films to get right. Yeah, you know, yeah. That they did, they made enough money to like squeak by, and then, um, uh, and then they were like, oh, "Do you know what? We've actually nailed it with the fifth one. They should all be like this." And the, I saw the trailer for the latest one, and they're all like, "Oh, we're being sent on a mission." And you go, "When are they on missions?" It was it was about guys who steal cars and things. It's yeah, but just you're not like... going to make ten of them. Ah. They've, they've 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 gone with it. You know what I mean? I think that that's uh, I think that's fine. Now you say here uh, because they were like ripoffs at the time as well. You know, there was like one about motorbikes with um, uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne was in one that had like motorbikes in it, and then there was even there was even wasn't there a Dwayne Johnson film called Fast. And that was about like traffic. <laughs> I mean, there, there's ten movies about traffic, um, so uh, not including traffic, which uh, ironically isn't about traffic. Oh, what's that about? Um, <laughs> that's um, uh, yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I, you can't really criticize. And people love them. Mm, and do you know that's what? what I mean, good for them. And people, B- Biker Boys was Lawrence Fishburne. Um, Biker Boys, that's a terrible title for a. That's a terrible <laughs> title for a fucking film with a Z on the end of boys. Oh dear, Biker Boys. Okay, fine, whatever, whatever. But you know, it, <laughs> it's nice that there's like films out there. Do you know what I mean? They're like, oh yeah, no, it's fine. It's not for me. It's fine. I just think it's interesting that I ignored them for a long time, and then they became massive, and you sort of go, oh right, I guess I should have been. Watching we, these, they I guess. They weren't accepted by the mainstream until the fifth film. And that's mm. when the fifth film came out and everyone was like, hey, this fifth one's really good. And then you go, do I want to watch the other four? 
and I'm sure that they're the sort of films that you can like dip in and out of. But I mm. think that you probably get more by just watching them all. And I reckon, mm. I mean, I I put off the Harry Potter films for years, and then I sat and watched them all in one glorious holiday, and um, uh, I ended up just really loving them. And I, I really enjoyed the repeat characters, and you know. Uh, you'd, there'd be like a film or two without some of the actors in it, and then they'd pop back up again. You go, oh yeah, I like them. So I guess that's kind of like I don't know. Let's move on. <laughs> Neither of us have seen them. You've seen no, the first it one. No, it seems mad. Does seem mad to talk about it. No, do you know what? Anyway, so you're listening to um, uh, Nick and Nathaniel Metcalf's. Fan club, fast Fan and club. furious special. <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking for a solid hour. We've done 12 minutes already about the fast and furious movies, and then we're going to quiz our guest on little known <laughs> facts about <laughs> fast and furious. Um, yeah, I'm sure it's great. Um, so you listen first rule of fan club, tell your friends about fan club, tell your friends, tell your friends. Second rule of fan club, Nat, please, for the love of God, tell your friends. And your foes. And your foes. Tell them all. Tell them um, if you like. If hey, if you like the show, tell your friends. If you don't like the show, tell your enemies. Natalie's <laughs> put on the chat uh, our email address, which is fanclub <laughs> at foobarradio.com that probably suggests we're getting low on correspondence, which we may or may not read out. Hey, don't don't open with that. Don't you know what? I'll tell you right, maybe this'll be maybe this will be inspirational for some of the uh, some of you plebs out there in uh, in the <laughs> in the in the real world. Yeah. Or uh, but sometimes you know now uh, we get straight to the truth around here. So I think the real world often plays out more like the fake world. Something like that. Yeah, uh, I'm shooting from the hip right now. Uh, I'm like uh, one of those 1980s uh, shock rock disc jocks, and I just want to say this: um, I do a thing when I'm out in public, or I meet people, and I do it on TV as well. I do it when I do eight out of ten cats or something, because my stage persona is quite aggressive. Um, what I do is I, um, I kind of, uh, I, I when i'm especially when i'm doing eight out of ten cuts or any other panel shows is that because it's an aggressive persona stage persona um it kind of like doesn't work when you're interacting with other people um so uh you can't just like dominate the whole thing and I don't really want, and I don't, I've got no desire to go go on a thing with loads of other people and dominate that. It's not like the thing. Are you listening, Nat? Yes, I am. Yeah. I'm saying that I don't don't like taking over and dominating things, right? Yes. Uh, okay. All right. I'm talking. And um, <laughs> so what I tend to do, what yes. I tend to do, is when I go on those shows, I sort of like do it like I'm seventy five percent. Uh, or I'm I'm 25% less intelligent. So I dumb myself down a bit so that I'm kind of like, so that the, the anger and rage that I bring out on stage comes from a different place, like a more misguided place, right? And mm-hmm. then that sort of like puts people at ease around me. But then what I have found is that people, um, you know, uh, 
do treat me like I'm an idiot. I have similar similar things that I do. I off, do exactly the same but, thing. But off stage, like in mm-hmm. a green room, and people start, you know, talking. Oh, really? Down, like in real life, and then you kind of like go. And I, I, I sort of like. Uh, and the other thing is, I'm very sort of like modest, right? I'm self-deprecating, and I'll always go in, and to put people at ease, I will make fun of myself, or I'll point out my failures or my insecurities or I'll point something out that makes me weak to you know I'll weaken myself deliberately in front of other people to put them at ease so that they're fine and you have two sorts of people I guess you have some some people that kind of like find that endearing and then they kind of like open up around you and they're kind of like more relaxed around you and then you know they let down their barriers a bit and then you have like a genuine proper chat you know and there's some people that leap on that and they start bullying you because they think this guy's an idiot, right? Um, and it's also the thing, it's kind of like, I'm always very down on myself, you know. You know, um, people might say, oh, I liked um, Uncle, for instance. And I'll always be like, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's all right. And I'm very proud of that show. But, like, you know, I acknowledge the fact that... Um, I'm just very down on myself and I'm the first to point out my flaws because I'm so, I'm so, I'm so damn good, Nathaniel, <laughs> that I just assume that that shines through and I don't need to promote myself. Right. Whereas you have uh, other people who aren't so good, but they're very good at promoting themselves. Right. <laughs> and, but, and I think people believe what you put out about yourself. I think that's yeah? true. I think that I is think true. That, I think that the world is less complicated than I think it is. And that what a, either I've been led to believe or B um, uh, what I've, what I've concocted in my mind. Right. And I think the world is less complicated than that. And I think that if you, and I think it's, it's sort of like if you put out a positive image of yourself, people will respond to that. Whereas if you're self deprecating, people will assume that what you're saying is true. Like if you say, oh, me, I'm rubbish, really. People will go, huh, well, why am I talking to this rubbish person, right? And I think that there's a little, do you know, you you get what I'm saying? I know exactly what you mean. I think it's one of those, I think, you know, I'm not a terribly confident person, but I often will play down how confident I might be in a social situation for exactly the same reasons. I quite like to sort of enter on quite a low status. I'm not I'm not going in anywhere trying to be big cock of the wall or anything. I, I like quite like walk, walking in and being like friendly or whatever and quite low status. But when I feel like someone will go, oh, brilliant, I can dominate this. I have a not, I have a thing in my head where I go, I'm not even that guy. But I'll just let them do it in a kind of, you've shown your colours here. Noted. Black mark against you. Yes. Bad pick. I- like I... But I think you're right. I think it's. I think what I'm saying when I do it, I feel like it's being social, whereas I feel like you're right in that sometimes I think you, you can do that and not put across the right. It, you're probably quite. It's not necessarily a, a bad thing to uh, be. Uh, what's the opposite? Of, see, I don't even know what the opposite of modest is to actually just be honest about achievements oh, and things i think i think that there's arrogance 
Mm. And there's modesty. And then there's sort of like just being just, you know, and I also think that I'm very hard on myself and I beat myself up about everything. But I also think if I'm going to do that, then you have to acknowledge when you've done something right as well. Otherwise, yeah. it makes all of the, the negativity like, pointless. You know, I, you know, you can't say I'm just being honest with myself, but I'm shit. Right. You can't say that and then do something that's genuinely good and just say, you know, especially when you're kind of like, um, uh, well, not, you know, whatever it is in your life whether it be baking a cake or a pie or painting a picture or just getting you know, the Excel spreadsheet done on time, whatever it is, you should be able to acknowledge when you've done it. You know, if I go on stage and I've died on my ass in front of 3,000 people and 1,000 of them have left the building, then I can say, well, that went badly, but I did a good job. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? You should be able to kind of like you know, weigh up the pros and cons. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that Nat, um, I can't remember what it was that you were saying. <laughs> it, was like, it was 10 minutes ago now. No, but, I don't know. But I think that what, to cut a long story short, you're listening to Fan Club. <laughs> <laughs> the, add- best, the best radio slash podcast on the market. Oh, yeah. Welcome to your future. <laughs> you know something like that yeah. where we like where right off the bat instead of like going oh there must be some sort of mistake that you're listening to the show why would you even why would you listen to us you know we're shit you know i imagine that's what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> you know and I'd, and I'd have to say i don't agree 100 percent with you there now <laughs> um <laughs> but if we if we start the show right yeah every by saying we're shit, you shouldn't listen to us. Yeah. Then, then we like putting that in the audience's head. Not all yeah. of them are going to be generous enough to realise that we mean the opposite. Yeah. So what we should actually do is we should try it in, uh, uh, you know, out loud for a week. Mm-hmm. You know, by just like saying, yeah, we're really good. Yeah. And then we, we might we might even be saying we're better than we actually are. Yeah. But but we might start believing it, and then that might up our game a bit. Sure. We do usually say that this is a five-star show. It's five-star family fun science fan club. Yeah, yeah obviously. Yeah. Hashtag. Yeah. Do you do the hashtag yeah. at the beginning or at the end? I think it's meant to come up in it. In a, no, it's, it's on radio, isn't it? Imagine it's come up like it's been embedded into the screen. So you can look, go, oh, do that when I yeah, write screen, about it. The screen is really just for us, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I mean. It's, it's um, audio, isn't it? So it's not going to work. You've got to imagine that now. Well, that's You've the hashtag that's come up. The hashtag has come up, and yeah. Um, so we're 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 great. Um, we I, think, be, I think should be this is a great show. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a great show. I think it's always been a great show from day one. Well, obviously there were some absolute clunkers, but um, we we some professional to point out who they were. But, <laughs> Fucking hell. No, let's move on. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that we know who they are. and um, You probably know who they are as well. And the, and the audiences at home probably know who they are. They're probably well aware of the ones that we've enjoyed. Or you. It's funny, though, because we often have very different experiences doing the show, don't it's we? It's true. You're on one journey and I'm on a fucking other journey. And at the end of it, we'll... 
when the guest leaves, you compare notes and and sometimes you've had a very different experience very different experience put it this way we're sure. three weeks in and this is the second show of the third season we've so, done we've done um but there's some where when the show one. ends we we look at each other and think yeah that was a stinker <laughs> occasionally we do definitely go or we just go wow wow i wasn't expecting that to happen wasn't expecting us to ask them about their latest project and for that to be the thing that kicks it off <laughs> fucking hell oh god and zoom doesn't make it better it's always better when people are in the room yeah. you say that but you know sometimes you get a guest in and they live right old fucking rat's nest in the fucking uh studio anyway uh don't read this now i don't know that's fine colon. that's i think okay that's so later. what's this say okay don't read it now okay well i won't <laughs> Um, so, um, but I'd say, I'd say for the most part, we've had some lovely guests and some people we've never met before who have turned out to be absolute delightful people. And it's a rarity. We've... It's a rarity that we get someone where you go, uh oh, they were tricky. Yeah. yeah, it's a rarity. You know, sometimes, you, you know, it's only, you only, I can count like three or four we get a month that are awful. <laughs> and then and then the rest are to- well we've had some amazing guests we've had some challenging guests mm-hmm. but we have always delivered on five star family fun sized fan club you bet um, hashtag and well, i want you to know you listeners that uh, and uh, yeah we it depends how this guest goes we may have a week off next week <laughs> but i want you to know that if we you know taking time off asides we're going to keep bringing you top-notch entertainment for you and we i don't want you to tell your friends because we've asked you i want you to tell your friends because it bubbles up inside of you every time you see someone new that you haven't seen in a while i want you to be able to just say do you know what with absolute confidence and pride fuck me fan club is the best fucking show (laughs) i have ever heard with my ears yeah, there's a lot of shit out there, you know, and we're like a nugget of gold amongst all of the um, pan panhandling, uh, the wheat and the chaff yeah. stuff. And we're 199 in Malta this week. What? That's We've down, dropped- isn't it? We're usually about 120 something, aren't we? We're normally like 50, 58 in Malta. What are you talking about? 199 in Malta. Is it the top 200? Are we nearly out of the chart? Yes, it is. Out of 200. Out of 200, we're 199. Well, we didn't even do a show last week. That That must be why. Fucking hell. We're that good that we can can go a week without doing a show. Someone listens to an old one. Fucking hell. Malta. You've pulled out the fucking... I was about to chastise you. You pulled out the fucking bag. And do you know what? We've just broken the New Zealand charts. Hello, New Zealand. Hello. What a... Hello. What a country. We don't know where Whoa. we are in New Zealand. <laughs> I, I, I misheard you there, mate. Something about something about the Zoom link. Uh, I think it's breaking up a bit. Um, uh, so yeah, so um, we've got uh, three minutes. Why don't you tell us what you've been a fan of uh, this week? Then we'll play my song, <laughs> and then I'll do the next half hour. Well, well, well just before that, <laughs> I was going to say uh, I read a thing that reminded me of what you're saying. That was in in a book that Darren Brown wrote. He wrote a little kind of 
memoir thing. And of course, because he's like a magician, mentalist, he was like, as a kid, he was very like, he was like a very nerdy kid and he would always basically spend all his time just doing tricks, didn't they? They do that. Darren Brown. Darren Brown. Very, like, you know. The the Darren Brown. You bet. The mentalist. He was was a bit... He was a nerd, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, like like oh. all magicians, like all magicians. They oh. did a thing once where he, he used to like he'd go places and he'd go, ah, oh, like um, I'm actually just better in his head. He'd be going, yeah, I don't like other people. They don't they don't appreciate me. And then he realised that he had this moment where he thought, actually, I put out this thing. I put out the version of me that's a bit of a dick. If I was just nicer. I reckon I'd <laughs> people would accept it. You like almost like you can't be the person that you are in your own head. You have to outwardly show some goodness. You you the way people see you is the image you project. So yeah. you can make a choice about that. And if you want to project a nicer image, you can just be nicer rather than think, well actually, I'm actually a really nice person on the inside. Sure. If you don't show it, this is like a game of chess ahead, though. This is like this is like four D chess, you know. This is like I don't. This is I, I'm. I think it's almost like the opposite of what I'm saying. It kind of is because we're he's talking like about saying, being. He's like saying that he is a cunt, <laughs> but if he pretends to be nice, then he can get what he wants. <laughs> Whereas what I'm saying is, people automatically assume I'm a cunt. So I act like I'm thick so that they can abuse me. <laughs> and then they like me. And I'm what I'm actually saying is cut all of the bullshit yes. and just acknowledge that you're a human being. Mm. You're no better or worse than... Better no. or worse than well, that's not true because there are some shitbags out there. Yeah. But you're, you're not acting like you're better than anyone else. You're just acknowledging the stuff that you personally do well. And yes. I think... And I think that, you know, we have um, we have a lot of listeners in Malta and I'm just like saying, you know, this is sort of like uh, my personal experience is that when I meet people, especially like maybe uh, younger comedians, people are a little bit like, oh, God, because I shout a lot on stage and they assume I'm going to be kind of like very noisy and intimidating. And so to put people at ease, I kind of like just like go the opposite way a bit and then and then you end up sort of like hitting off people a bit more but then sometimes you end up with people that treat you like you're a fucking cunt and then you kind of like go oh oh dear well you can note that right that's what i do i but make a little mark I, and go that's a bad person that's what i think i i just think it's just kind of like i'm i'm cleverer than you hmm. nah <laughs> <laughs> You spat your drink out. Oh, it was worth having that week off, wasn't it? I feel feel absolutely charged. It's not what I've been a fan of this week. I'm just like saying that um, uh, for anyone that's listening out there, try and just sort Mm. of like project an image of someone that's got it together and maybe people will start. You know, it's an experiment. I'm going to try it. Nat's going to try it. Um, I think if if everyone tries it, you know, we can all try and make the world a little bit better. If you exercise kindness with it as well. Don't let it get to your head. Anyway, we haven't got time for your stuff this week now. Let's play my song. 
Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're back, we're back, we're back in the studio. We're, we're still actually uh, remote via the Zoom. I don't know when we're going back to the studio. No. Um, if we ever will. But if we do go back to the studio, you can guarantee one thing. The quality of guests will drop. So... <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. We're not getting Kyle Gas <laughs> uh, live on a Friday. So, um, so here we go. Um, what have you been a fan of this week? Now we're going to cut to the, to the nuts and berries of the. Of the- uh, do you know what? I've seen a few films this week. I saw The Dark Half. Have you ever seen that film? The George the Timothy, Romero film. Tim- Timothy Hutton, George Romero, based on yeah. the uh, Stephen, Stephen King story. Yeah. Uh, no, I've not seen it. Tell me about it. <laughs> it was, it's. It, I thought it was all right. I was a bit. I was a little bit disappointed. I don't think it really transcends its era in a way that I was expecting it might. I fucking love Timothy Hutton, and I find his career a little bit baffling. Um, so, if anyone's can shed some light on that i think timothy hunt's brilliant and um i was a big fan of the film beautiful girls and he made yeah. that film what's the film where he, he's he's in ordinary people what's the robert yeah, what's, redford film yeah or yes ordinary people i think it's ordinary people isn't it and um he was also in that film where he plays a guy it's he called a, he called, plays a guy called cosmo and he dies and he goes to heaven and Deborah Winger plays the devil. Oh, I know what you mean. I can't know what it's um, called. And it's it's not far from heaven, but it's something like that. Or is it? Or is it? It's not days from heaven. It's not M- heaven's no. gate. It's it's a heaven can wait. Mm. It's not that. It's a film with Timothy. Anyway, can you look it up, Natalie? Um, so I really like. Uh, I'm, I really like. And he was in. He was in uh, the first series of uh, Haunting of Hill House playing an older version of Henry Thomas, and you kind of like go, there's about 10 years difference between them. You should just age one of them up or down, really. Made in heaven. Made in heaven. Um, so I really... Uh, 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 interesting that you're talking about Stephen King. Talk about Stephen King. Go on. <laughs> when I was going to say, what was interesting, things I found interesting about Timothy Hutton, when they were talking about it, they, they were saying that... It, that's 1993, and I guess it makes sense that the studio there, it was made by Orion, it was one of the last sort of films they made, but they were talking about um, how the studio were to George Romero, right, well, we need... George Romero wanted Michael Rooker to play the main part, and they were like, no way, Michael Rooker's not a star. He's not a star. In and 1993? They, in 1993, 1993 exactly. It's just done cliffhanger, so come on. <laughs> Fresh, uh, fresh off the back of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, straight into Cliffhanger. Fucking hell, who's not a star? He's perfect for your dark half, surely. But he, so 1993, the studio gave him three names that they were like, these guys, we, we, we'll do it if you can get any of these three guys to do it. And they were Timothy Hutton, Gary Oldman, or Willem Dafoe. And I thought that's really interesting because you just think that's the era of it where they were like, totally bankable uh actors to make what is like a big budget horror movie you know it's not like it does feel like they spent some money on it i don't think it's like they're they're totally bankable i think that they i think who was the middle one gary oldman i think gary Mm. oldman and willem dafoe are very much in the same kind of like 
wheelhouse. Yeah. And they do a certain thing, and it's sort of like, who did he want? Michael Rooker. Michael Rooker's not that far off from... Yeah, I wouldn't of, have thought. I think that Timothy Hutton's the odd one out, right? Mm. And like, that's but, what I was thinking. Just in 1993, I was like, God, that's such a funny list of people that, the, that you're like, um, well, you can't do it. But if you get any of these three, we'll give you the money. What I'd actually say about Zarkov as well is that Timothy Hutton feels miscast because yes. he's he's such an incredibly likable guy that when he does all of the um, the other half mm-hmm. personality stuff, it kind of. Whereas if you get someone like Willem Dafoe, they could do it in the same shot. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, uh, with the same face. I think that's the, the, the. I think it's a better way round. It sort of it works better. Because he does, you know, his personality changes. Whereas if you're if you're doing a film like that, it's like you're talking about The Shining. Like right. Nicholson is in it, and you're going, "Yeah, well, when he goes mad, well, you did, go, sure, but he's Nicholson, right?" You just did think that. Did we talk about that on air? Oh, maybe not. Maybe not. So that's what I want to talk to you about because basically, like, oh, I, the thing is, I think the dark half really would benefit from being a lot more subtle. Mm. It's sort of like it sold us like this psychological thing about this guy with a split personality. But in actual fact, the way it plays out is it's like Jacqueline Hyde and this guy turns into a monster. And and also he turns into like a not just a monster, but a mobster, isn't he? He's like a gangster guy. And it's kind of like you go, well, that he's not just sort of like a personality change. He's a career change. It's like yeah. his, alter, his, oh, yeah, his alternative personality. Yes. His alter, well, no, his all. His alter ego has got an alternative career that he must have started at from a very early age. And it's more supernatural than that. So he is, it's like he's had this twin who died, but the twin is then resurrected as this almost mystical. So there are two of them. There are two beings. He is two different people. But it's not even that clear. You start, because a lot of it's like, oh, but it is him. It's just like a psychological thing. But by the end, it's like, yeah, he has become two people right okay so I see, I'm, I'm remembering it quite differently it's not you know you could you could watch a whole film and be confused by it because it isn't that clear but it's this like there is this idea that he's meant to have kind of come out of the grave he's meant to be like the twin that died he's he basically has a brain tumor and when they find that the brain tumor was actually yeah it's actually like it had a, has an eye and you go oh it was obviously like he was at one point a twin yeah and the idea is that that tw- that sort of tumor twin is sort of taken out of him as a child and buried, but then somehow grows up in this sort of mythical, like is reborn as an adult from the grave. It's that sort of thing where where they are a bit more like sort of quite silly supernatural element to they, it. And but they do all of that in thirty seconds in mm. uh, Army of Darkness, and it's just yes. kind of like you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, um, I just find. I just, yeah, I so I'm uh, listening to The Shining at the moment um, because all of this time I've been, I'm sort of obsessed with the film The Shining without really liking it. I kind of like, I'm just constantly trying to crack the code of The Shining. What does The Shining mean? You know, um, why, why did he do it this way? You know, there's all the stuff about... Um, how the hotel, uh, the the way, the layout of the hotel and the background props in the hotel, they change from shot to shot. 
and it's very confusing and disorientating and it's kind of like well what does it mean does this half mean that it's this is the dream world and does this mean that um this is the book this is the story within the story uh, or is this sort of like a, and um uh, but i've never read the book because i think i've tried to read the book but um I've sort of like lost interest. Anyway, I'm watching, I'm listening to the book. Campbell Scott is reading it to me at night and he's got an amazing voice. Uh, and I've seen bits of the mini series that Stephen King did because he hated Stanley Kubrick's Shining. One of his first issues was the fact that they've cast Jack Nicholson because Jack Nicholson had just done, um, not only had he just done One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, so you're instantly thinking, well, he's crazy. But also he plays it like he's crazy from the very first shot when mm. he's driving the car. And he plays it like he hates his family from the very first shot. And it's kind of like, and one of the things that I find, I guess I find unsettling about The Shining, if it's a deliberate thing that Stanley Kubrick did, is that you feel like, because um, I was quite young when I saw it, you feel like that this dad is a very dangerous dad. You know, you feel like he hates his family, he hates his wife, he hates the kid. And you feel like this kind of, you know, um this kind of as a child you feel like you know you have like this sixth sense around adults where you go like oh, i don't i don't like this adult um they're talking down to me or there's something that's that's missing from them um and and you kind of like get that with the shining and then when you read the book the guy is absolutely lovely he loves his kid he loves his wife he's doing this thing to kind of like make the 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 marriage work they're trying to save their marriage he's fucked up he was a drinker uh, but he's given up drinking and he's kind of like really trying to save everything pull everything together and so it's a it's much more tragic where it's kind of like this thing and gradual obviously it's this huge book so instantly in reading the book or I'm only like halfway through, but like in, re in, in reading it, you're kind of like go, I, I've always thought because Stanley Kubrick was such a, this amazing director, that Stephen King was crazy to kind of like say that he didn't like The Shining. And I think that that's the, I think that's the, you know, uh, the, the majority of people think Stephen King doesn't know what he's fucking talking about. If you look mm. at all of the other adaptations of his work, The Shining is by far the best. It's the one that uses the least of the source material. And he basically uses the setting and the um, uh, and the, the um, setup to kind of like Stanley Kubrick to tell his own story. When you read it compared to the book, you kind of like go, it's nothing like the book. Um, uh, there's no maze in the book. Um, and um, uh, and that doesn't really feel like a big thing, except for the fact that there's a line in the book that says um, the halls of the hotel are like uh, a maze and the kid gets lost in them. And then you go, if I was Stanley Kubrick adapting the book and you're looking for visuals and also low budget visuals, because in the book, they're kind of um, what you call the, you know, the... Uh, hedges that have been cut into oh topiary yeah so there's topiary that comes alive there's like giant dogs and dinosaurs like edward scissorhands and they all come alive and um the main character jack torrance he thinks he's going crazy because they could keep moving and you know, well that'd be a huge budget so they've made a maze right and a maze is kind of like you don't have to animate hedges right and so you've taken this one line out of the book and you've turned it into 
a theme for the film, which is that the hotel's like a maze and there is a maze outside and it's these the, the mother and the son um they keep getting lost in the hotel and it's kind of like this thing that disorientates them and then they end up in the maze at the end of the film where it's kind of like um it's basically a, a summary of what the film has been right and you kind of go oh right and i think that's as deep as it gets and i think i've been spending all this time looking for this deeper meaning within the film and in actual fact i think you can explain it in one line in the book and stanley kubrick has really run with it and gone well we'll just move the the set around so that it's disorientating but i don't think it means anything more than that i think it's a i think it's still a genius move but i think it's it's not like um a superhuman level of genius i think it's just kind of like taking the source material and pushing it a little bit further um and i think in reading the book and i am i'd be surprised i think that a lot less people have read the shining than have claimed to have read it mm. and i think by i think hands down i've tried to read Stephen king in the past i think that this is this book guys this is my top tip from 1976 or whatever it was <laughs> shining you wait till you check it out guys the shining it's, is i reckon out of that write, write that down the shining it's the absolutely shining. it's it's it, it the book is incredible and it kind of like although the film is trying to do something completely different it does fill in a lot of the gaps that leave me scratching my head and i think if you were already familiar with the book then it's a companion piece and if you're not then it's like this this puzzle that you're trying to undo and in actual fact, no, it's a companion piece to the to the to the novel. Hmm. Um, again, it gets really silly, and I think um, I think the film works best when it's psychological, and the book is really fantastical. And I kind of think that, that all works good on paper, but with the dark half, I just think that it's a, it's it's a bit of a disgusting film. Hmm. And uh, like it makes me feel like physically squeamish and sick. And but also I don't think it's. I think it, it's one of the reasons why Stephen King is very difficult to adapt, and he shouldn't necessarily be adaptable. He should. He writes these thousand-page novels. Yeah. And they work as, and they, they're not designed for a feature-length run. No, but it's weird how how many of his things have been adapted and he was for a time this huge kind of like if it's a stephen king book we'll make a film of it and we'll make a fortune oh, really that, successful yeah well, carrie was carrie was his first book right yeah, and yeah. Then they made that into a huge like brian de palma huge mm -hmm. successful film that film is absolutely fucking incredible except mm. for the sped up bit when william cat is trying on tuxedos or whatever that is. <laughs> yeah. like, like uh, but like the whole the whole bit the, the, i think carrie is great and so they were like and uh, Stanley Kubrick had just had a flop. I can't remember what the film was he made before. He needed a guaranteed hit. It was that he was he was going to make that Napoleon film, wasn't he, with Nicholson? And then he couldn't get it together. And I think Warner Brothers were a bit reticent about giving him the money. And he was like, "Yeah, I need a hit now." So he went to for a King book. You know, he was like, yeah, "He went." It's, the, it's it's Stephen King's third book, isn't it? I think something and like so that. He, yeah, it's like it was, oh, it's the number one bestseller. I'll take that and I'll adapt that and then that will get bums on seats. And then I can just put whatever I want psychologically on top of this best-selling book. Stephen King wasn't as reverential back then, you know, mm. he'd only done three big books, you know? Um, 
So Stanley Kubrick really could do what he wanted with it because he was Stanley fucking Kubrick. And then time has passed and it's kind of like Stephen King has lasted and Stanley Kubrick's lasted. And you look back on it and everyone kind of gives Stanley Kubrick mm. the intellectual kind of um, uh, right to go around and do whatever he likes to everyone else's source mm -hmm. material. Whereas in actual fact, you know, Shelley Duvall's performance in, Stan in The Shining is a very sort of like uh harrowing complicated it's a harrowing performance you know and it was brought about by this woman being forced into a mental breakdown while she was on set so it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult performance to watch and in the book the character is nothing like that you know she's she's a much stronger part um she uh she gets on much better with her husband um uh she's got like a mind of her own and she's not kind of like this um you know she's trying to save her marriage as much as jack torrance and it's kind of like um and in the the film she's always a victim there's kind of like you know um she's always it, even when he's driving the car he's so horrible to her that you kind of like is and you don't you don't even feel it's not that you don't feel sorry for her because you, you do but it's just kind of like it's difficult to empathize with the character that is that has very even though she's the victim she has very few um uh likable qualities to her because um because that's not what Stanley Kubrick is trying to get out of the character and it's just sort of like when you read the book and it's a lot more three-dimensional it's kind of like it's interesting what he's what he's taken and what he's left yeah um I just find it all a bit and and so Stephen King book Stephen King books don't necessarily need to be adapted and even like when you have you give it like seven hours like the it adaptation in two parts even that is kind of like a film that I think is twenty five percent successful mm. and I, I think about the TV movie it a lot more and maybe it's nostalgia but I think about it a lot more uh, or I've thought about it a lot more since I've seen the two films the two new yeah. films then i have the two new films um i think the cgi didn't work uh i don't find them i don't find them scary and then maybe they're psychologically scary if you think about what the implications of the films are but really um <sighs> if you've got a do you know what i mean if mm. it, it, if a film plays on you but it doesn't play on you while you're actually watching it i find that kind of like it's your imagination that's doing the work it's funny you mentioned uh, Carrie as well, because the film that uh, uh, The Dark Half kind of reminded me most of, of its time period and of tonally, is is like Raising Cain was the thing that I was like, it's like yeah, Raising Cain. That's what Cain. it feels like. But Raising Cain is um, more, uh, I mean, it's not more subtle. No. But, but the script, but, but the yeah. story is more of like a... It's like more of a psychological, believable version of what the dark half is. Exactly. Yeah. And it's kind of like Stephen King always takes his stuff to like, um, and I don't know, maybe there's some sort of substance that's been uh, <laughs> used in the creation of this stuff. But like Stephen King always kind of like, um, he either jumps the shark, nukes the fridge, fucks the pig, shits the bed. He does something where his films kind of like, you know, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. What? Yeah. And I think maybe Stanley Kubrick takes that what element out of it mm -hmm. and he makes it more of a psychological thing. But yeah, probably the best uh, King adaptation is something like Stand By Me, which isn't uh, 
supernatural you know stand by me is one of the absolute greatest films ever made i watched it you know um within lockdown last year and i was mm. just i cried all the way through it it's so it's nostalgic but it's so um it just hits a nerve and it's very unusual to have a film about young boys like a like a coming of age film where it's kind of like where where young boys talk about their emotions in that sort of way, mm. I think. And it's a dark film, and it's not about baseball. It's, do you know what I mean? It's not like mm. oh, they're, in a, they're in a team. And a, I just think it's a very kind of like emotional film. It's a sort of... It sort of reminds me of Fried Green Tomatoes. Um, it's, it's like... Which I think is an excellent film. But you kind of like normally associate emotional films like that with films that have women in. Mm-hmm. And to have like a film where there are these young impressionable boy, impressionable boys in it, I think is kind of like it's really um, important kind of like great film. But then also, you know, Shawshank Redemption is an amazing adaptation of a Stephen King book, mm-hmm. and um, and they're set in the real world. You know, um, I'm I'm not down on Stephen King at all. I have found i've had like this 20 year struggle with daddy kubrick's the shining and i'm just sort of like getting to a point where like another thing and we've got to do fan mail in a second but another thing that they do in the, the book is they talk about all of the people that died in the hotel they say there's 11 people that have died in this hotel and you go well that's all the ghosts do you know what i mean it's like all the ghosts in the film aren't necessarily connected you know you've got the guy in the bear suit that's giving the guy a blowjob in the hotel room and um and then you've got the butler with a, a gash down his head and the um the doors of the elevator spilling blood and all of that so you've got all these specific go- ghosts in the film it's kind of like, how are they all connected the little girls in the hallway how are they all connected and it's kind of like they don't they don't have to be connected they can just be unrelated ghosts that are in the hotel and then you go great i don't have to solve that I don't have to solve that mystery anymore. Or I've solved that mystery. It's as deep as you want it to be. I've constantly been trying to look for that extra thing. What does it all mean? How does it all fix together? And I I don't think it does. And I don't think it was intended to. And I actually find that more enjoyable than feeling like I'm a fucking idiot for two hours. (laughs) Um, But Dark Half finish off on the dark half and then let's do some fun. no no that was it really that was kind of i was i was a bit kind of it wasn't it didn't grab me but it's it's kind of like an interesting film but it just didn't just didn't grab me in the way that i thought it might and i felt like for uh it felt like one of those films it was might go beyond what i thought it would be like and in the end it was sort of just what i thought it'd be like and you'd never seen it before no never seen it interesting i i i, I love timothy hutton and um uh, yeah, and I was, I've seen it because of him, I think. And George A. Romero obviously did Creep Show with um, Stephen King. And yeah, and so they were pals apparently. They like that, or you know, sort of. They were acquainted, and they they liked each other. Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure that George Romero would have done a much more faithful adaptation of The Shining. But I think mm. the book is actually unfilmable, mm. or it was. I'd be interested. I think that. You know, I think that if they were going to do Doctor Sleep, what they absolutely should have done was they should have remade The Shining, and then they should have done Doctor Sleep as and a I sequel think, to The Shining. And I think, and I think that you've got Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, which will always last forever, right? Um, 
but as an adaptation of a book it's not great and so what they should do is they should do an actual decent uh version of the shining which doesn't tre tread on Stanley Kubrick's toes and then do a sequel to that rather than do this weird fucking hybrid of a sequel to the book and a sequel to the film, even though the book and the film aren't related and don't end the same. And, you know, anyway. Hi, Nick and Nat. Just wanted to share my experience of heading back to the cinema. I was a little bit hasty, but finally bit the bullet. I went to see The Sound of Metal at my local independent. I felt a flood of emotions as soon as I sat down, and although the regulations are in place and it doesn't feel completely normal yet, I just found the whole experience completely overwhelming. The film was astounding, with a great performance from Riz Ahmed, and I felt such a relief. <coughs> God, this hurts. <laughs> I felt such a relief being out and about experiencing new things again. I really recommend the film. I was really glad to see it on the big screen. Keep up the good work, Lewis. Oh, great. Oh, that's nice. Have a good... Like, we, I think that's that's nice, isn't it? That you've... We went to the cinema on... Um, Sunday. Sunday. Went to see The Handmaiden. Mm -hmm. uh, Nathaniel bought us a couple of tickets for this uh, pornographic lesbian <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, thriller. And, uh, yeah, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable. Um, uh, it was good, wasn't it? Yeah, I thought it was really good. I'd never, not seen it before. And I, I, in my head, I thought it came out like a little bit pre-pandemic and the Prince Charles were just showing something that had been slightly over, bit overlooked or whatever. And I'd meant to see it when it came out and I never did. And then when uh, when I went to book tickets for it, I realised that it had come out five years ago. Five years ago. Yeah, it didn't sound... It didn't sound I, I remember it coming out and it didn't because... But then it, we've had the Handmaid's Tale since, and it's kind of like a handmaiden. Is this? Okay, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And it, it's obviously unrelated. Um, it's Park uh, uh, Chan Wook. Wook, yeah. And um, it's Korean. It is Korean, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's. But aside from the film, because we can't really get into that, but like the actual experience of going to the cinema. Uh, Jury's still out. <laughs> we were but, very, we were on, we were on the back row, and I was right next to the I was right next to the air pump that uh, replaces all of the air in the cinema. Yeah. I was fucking freezing because it was a summer's day outside. It was so cold in the cinema, and we were fucking miles away. And it was a little bit like watching a film off of my phone that I put in the corner of my living room and sat on the. It was like miles away, so. Um, there probably yeah, there probably weren't the best seats chosen, but that was my fault rather than all, the film. Which is all down to you, isn't it? The yes, fact that the film is watchable on any level is down to um, uh, <laughs> the filmmaker. He's done a good job. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do like Korean films. Though. Is that the only? Is that the only? No, we've got loads of fama down here. Uh, uh, don't read this now. Hi, Nick and I just wanted to share my experience of heading back oh, to no, the that's cinema. Oh, that's the same it's, it's, one. That's the same one. Hi, Nick and I just wanted to share my... Are you fucking kidding me? I mean, oh, what? What? Okay, oh, is this one underneath? Or, yeah, so always great and funny. That's another one, isn't it? Always great and funny. I love this. Oh, it's moved. Why did it move? Always great and funny. I love the slightly shambolic production. That's Natalie. She's in charge of production. And <laughs> Nick and Nathaniel are consistent and always great. Consistent and always, always great. great. So we're always great and consistent with it. Yes. So that means we're always, always great. 
Yeah. Uh, good guess and always funny. Always funny. Always funny. Love learning about films from two knowledgeable presenters. Well, that's nice, but we don't just talk about films. We talk about things that people are a fan of in general. <laughs> that, that's what we uh, agreed to make That's the what show the show about, is. And that's what we do. Um, uh, FYI, uh, not a fan of Lego. So here we go. Um, uh, that's all. That's all we've had. But um, we, and that's from we, Bren Clark. Thank you, Bren. That's, that's from Bren Clark. That's really, really lovely. Um, it looks like we've had tons of fan mail, but it's actually just the two, the same two bits of fan mail that are being copied and pasted uh, all the way down in the comment section in uh, Zoom. So that means that we can play a song and we can get our uh, guest on. Uh, New Zealand fans can get in touch uh, at fan club at foobarradio.com and news just in that email works outside of new zealand as well you can email people from anywhere in the world fan club at foobarradio.com right that's right simple as that fan club at foobarradio.com yeah fan Uh, club we'd love you can do it right now please we would love <laughs> Paul McCartney. What? Yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> um, coming. We, we would, uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. We're desperate to hear from you. But, um, uh, but we're a really good show, and uh, you know, we, we don't feel in any way like we're not as good as some of the other podcasts that are out there because we're better <laughs> yeah. than them. No. Do you know what though? I think this about this show, and, and in general, like the stand-up that I do and the shows I make, I perhaps. Perhaps it's a good thing. Perhaps it's not. I always try and make things that I would like and listen to. But this show, to me, is like the perfect podcast because I'm in it. Sure. Well, <laughs> do you know I, what I mean? I, I, yeah, I do know what you mean. And when we first started doing it, I used to listen to it every week. Mm. Um, I don't I don't listen to it back anymore because it's not really for me. But um, <laughs> I, uh, some people like it. Let's play that song uh, and then let's get our guest on. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we're back. We're back. We're back. That was Nas. <laughs> yeah, I've never done that before. I've never. I've I've never play, done it. I'm not playing the song. The song's not in front of me. Uh, Nat played the song. Um, this is our guest's favourite song of all time. The guest isn't here yet, so we're just going to keep talking because I reckon, if anything, the guests slow us down. Um, <laughs> So I guess this is a good opportunity for me to ask, what have you been a fan of this week? What I really enjoyed this... Well, I'm just like saying that I think Stephen King doesn't necessarily... I think Stephen King is probably more well-known to the mainstream uh, as um, the horror novelist that no one's read, but a lot of films have been made out of his stuff. Yeah, if yeah. You, if, you, if you actually read The Shining is... I'm just... I love the book so much. I look forward to yeah. going to bed at night so that I can listen to the book. Well, also, yeah. like in that period, the 80s and 90s, Stephen King films felt like Spielberg films or something, right? He was like the, he was the name on those films that were selling them, even though they were made by various different people. Well, when you get to the 90s, then you start getting like the stuff like this, um, not Silver Bullet, that's the... Uh, there's one about a plane and there's one about a bus. 
the Langoliers. Um, is that one? No, not the Langoliers. But like when there, well, then in the nineties, you get it, the Tommyknockers, the yeah. Langoliers, and they're all kind of like these TV adaptations. And um, then kind of like the quality really started. The Stand was great, but which they've just remade, and I haven't I haven't watched the the, the new one. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the Stand. Um, TV miniseries with uh, Rob Lowe was in it. Uh, Ed Harris, Gary Sinise. It's like the entire. Ca- it's like watching the entire cast of uh, Forrest Gump get wiped out by a uh, a mutant virus. Mm. Um, if that's or Apollo thing. thirteen. Or Apollo thirteen. Yeah. And I think they were in another film together. Natalie, <laughs> look it up. Um, yeah. So I think that I, th- I think that they in the eighties they were kind of like. Um, sort of like it's like a tentpole thing a brand yeah. they they were a brand as you'd say now aren't they because the because you also had uh salem's lot uh, directed by toby hooper oh, yeah, which, yeah. Was, which was tv as well yeah maybe maybe but I, i'd say that maybe he works better as a tv adaptation but i think most of the tv adaptations have been fucking terrible so mm. i don't know i don't know that much about stephen king i just know that the adaptations aren't that great and even something that is like all intellectualized like the shining um, and I'm saying this with uh, four shining cushions, uh, a shining picture, and a shining throw rug in my office. Um, I think that it's been over-intellectualized to the point where people kind of like, they look at the book like it really is kind of like lowbrow. Yes. Where in actual fact, it's kind of, and it's kind of like, it's snobby. I think there's a snobby attitude towards Stephen King from Stanley Kubrick fans. I mean, in actual fact, I think that the Stanley Kubrick film is possibly overlauded. Yeah, but also I think you can have stuff which is both a good film and a bad adaptation, right? It's Uh, just like... and you can also have a good film and a good book and they've got nothing in common. Um, You know, I... it's. I keep watching The Shining and I still find new things to see in it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I really was a huge fan of the novel, The Lost World, the sequel to Jurassic Park. And I think that that is one of the worst, most excruciating films. I, I, and I'm, I hate that film. I hate mm-hmm. The Lost World so much. I tried to, I think I watched it last year in lockdown and I, I like it hasn't got, it's one of the most, unlikable smug badly conceived films that's uh, like mainstream films as well it's just awful and everything that's likable about Jurassic Park the first one is kind of like I had just is absent in the second one so that's like and they're both lowbrow do you know what I mean but the book is kind of like an enjoyable sort of like adventure on mind you I read it when I was 15 so I haven't reread it so who knows? I'm just, I've just got. I enjoyed it at the time, you know. Um, anyway, so what I've been a fan of uh, this week, um, I watched um, Army of the Dead over the weekend with uh, yeah, 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 season two guest Samantha Wynn uh, in it, Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead. Um, it's a, it's an unusual film. So um, I would say it. Um, I enjoyed it. This is how I will review it. I don't want to review it. I'm just saying what I like. I enjoyed Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead on exactly the level I think 
it was intended. No more, no less. <laughs> there were some really f enjoyable uh, bits of gore. And I remember I was sort of like on the edge of my seat in a couple of places and I found it um, ridiculous in places. There's loads of plot holes. It doesn't always make sense. But sometimes you watch a film and there's a plot hole in it that absolutely destroys the film for you and you can't enjoy it anymore. And I've seen that there's a lot of online reviews that have been very negative about Army of the Dead. Um, and I... When I watched it, I noticed all of the problems with it. I noticed that, you know, there's scenes where people run away instead of getting in a car. And there's scenes where you go, why did that person come along? And why are they in that location when they should be in this location? And do you remember that guy from the film? No, I don't remember that character at all. So there were like loads of problems with it. But I think Dave Batiste is really enjoyable. Um, it's, I'm biased because Samantha Wynn came on and she was lovely and um, uh, we had a really nice chat with her and you know I was sort of like whenever she was on screen I was like oh come on you can do it I was sort of like invested in her character maybe more because we met her but um, I really I just I just I really thought that there was a lot to enjoy. What the thing I enjoyed the most, which I think it's been getting a lot of flack for, is all of like the reference points. It's kind of like there are so many little kind of reference everyone has been saying it's basically aliens. They've stolen the prop from aliens and they've applied it to Army of the Dead. And there is that. They have done that. And Samantha Wynn even has kind of like the bandana that uh, Vasquez has from uh, Aliens. And so there's sort of like some really on-the-nose reference points. But then there's also some more sort of like, this is like the plot and you know, stuff like that. So there's that. But there's also stuff from... What I liked about it is it's kind of like this film that he's made, but it is purely a vehicle for like a nostalgia trip where... Zack Snyder has just inserted images and moments and, um, uh, you know, uh, lines of dialogue here and there from uh, all of the films that I imagine he watched when he was growing up. I would say from the, I think the earliest reference kind of I got was from Star Wars. There's like a, which is 1977. And then loads of 80s stuff. The stuff from uh, uh, Ghostbusters, uh, American Werewolf in London, Escape from New York. And then there's even stuff like from, I think, Jurassic Park from the 90s. But there's like this 15-year chunk where you go, it's all, um, you know, it's all very much like stuff that has gone into the cement mix and come out you know, in Army of, the, Army of the Dead. And I think I, enjoy, I enjoyed that. I normally hate those things where I feel like in the Tom Cruise Mummy film where they basically rip off American Werewolf in London, I felt like, I felt that was really unfair because American Werewolf in London is a cult classic and it didn't have a huge budget and they really pushed the boundaries of what it was possible to do on that budget with practical effects in 1981. Um, and it's a film that's lasted for 40 years. And I think American Werewolf in London is an absolute classic. So for this huge multi, you know, $250 million Tom Cruise big budget uh, action movie that's going to get a, you know, a, you know, I think it was a 12, 
over here. Yes, yeah, so it's got like a it's got an automatically wide mainstream 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 audience, mainstream audience. You know, um, there's a whole generation of people or a whole group of people that would have seen the mummy. Actually, there wasn't. <laughs> But there's a whole group of people that saw The Mummy that have never heard of or seen American Werewolf in London that assumed that, you know, uh, moments from The Mummy are an original concoction from that film. When in actual fact, you go, no, no. It's it's like a much bigger property has come along and stolen it off of a tiny film that I've spent my whole life watching. And, um, and it doesn't do that. There's like a scene that is directly out of American Werewolf in London which you know is only in there because Zack Snyder loves that film. But also, it doesn't make any sense in the context that it's in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still enjoyed it. And so is it referential? Referential? Is that the right word? Uh, in the same way like an Edgar Wright movie is, similar to that sort of thing? In a, in a way, but it's just kind of like, you know, the whole film takes place in a walled-off city that they've got to get into in order to, you know... Um, uh, complete a mission mm-hmm. and you go, yeah that's escape from new york but I, at no point did i feel like you're ripping off escape from new york i felt like yeah that's the thing they're going around with these huge backpacks on which are um sort of uh, petrol uh canisters that are taped onto their backs and you go yeah they look like the ghostbusters you know um it's kind of like it's kind of like stuff and then there's like direct sort of like story beats from aliens and um and i just enjoy, i enjoyed it i enjoyed mm-hmm. it on the on that on the level that it was intended i think that it's a deeply flawed film mm. but it didn't get in the way of me enjoying it and i think that that's i mean it's crazy he's used these six these 1960s lenses uh which don't have any depth perception so the whole film is out of focus yeah um and you kind of go that's crazy why did you do why did you do that like it's out of because he did the DOP himself. He was the director of photography himself. So, um, so it's kind of like it's maybe like his worst looking film. But um, you know, you've got to compare it to other Zack Snyder films. I think my favourite Zack Snyder film uh, is Dawn of the Dead, and then I would say um, I did I do en- I did enjoy Watchmen when I saw it in the cinema. I haven't seen it loads since, but I did enjoy it. Um, and um, I really, 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 really enjoyed Justice League, his his cut of Justice League. And I've no word of a lie. I've thought about Justice League every single day since I watched it on some level. I really, I don't, I'm not over into, it's not an intellectual film. It's not, it's not even a particularly instantly rewatchable film because it's fucking four hours long. But it's, um, I really enjoyed it. It meant something to me. Um not being a massive fan of the Marvel films and being a huge Batman fan and DC fan. Um, it kind of like meant, you know, it meant something to me, that film. And then, and then I enjoyed this. It's better than Man of Steel, probably about as good as Batman versus Superman. Take, read into that what you will. And I've never seen 300 and I've seen half of Sucker Punch. Um, I always got the impression when Army of the Dead was kind of mooted, and I think Samantha Wynn was kind of played this down. And I don't know to what extent that's because she was avoiding spoilers and things. But is it like when, in my mind, when someone has made Dawn of the Dead and then they're doing a film called Army of the Dead, another zombie film, to me it made me think of 
the way that George Romero, he would make these zombie films and he'd do these sequels that were basically, it's kind of in the same world, but it's not. And it's kind of like, it's a whole new story. It's a whole other thing with zombies. And each one has got a kind of different take. And by the time he does the third one, it's the idea that, you know, the zombies have now been around for years and years and a, a long time has passed. And now <laughs> society's like this. And now it's like... Kind of. It was, well, I think that with George A. Romero, what he did was he did a zombie movie a decade. So Night of the Living Dead was 60s. Mm-hmm. And they changed the title. They, had, they, they changed the title on the way to get the posters printed. So the, the film was called something like Night of the Comet. It wasn't Night of the Comet, but it was something like that. Mm-hmm. And then they changed the title to Night of the Living Dead. But they didn't copyright it, which means that it's... Um, uh, oh, public it? domain. It's public domain, which is why anyone can basically do a remake of Night of the Living Dead, I think. And they didn't own the title of The Living Dead. So then all the sequels were Dawn of the Dead, not of The Living Dead, you know, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. And that's why the Return of the Living Dead films are kind of like, hey, you know that film Night of the Living Dead? Well, that film is based on reality, and this is the reality. And that's what the Return of the Living Dead films are. So they're kind of like a splintered off uh, mm-hmm. franchise. They're not related to the franchise, but they're inspired by this load of, I, I love Return of the Living Dead. I think it's a great movie. Sequels, not so much. Um, right, let's go and get our guest. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. We're back. Um, we, we never went anywhere. <laughs> we never went anywhere. Uh, We've just been here. Well, I, I, we're joined now by uh, our, uh, ne- oh, our next guest, this week's guest. Uh, this week's guest, one of one of a conveyor belt of guests. We're, <laughs> we're joined now by Dane Baptiste. How you doing, Dane? I'm good, Nick Helm. How are you? Um, yeah, it's, yeah, I'm all right. Actually, um, I'm hot. I'm hot. Do you know what? I'm hot is what I am. It's very hot. That's, um, that's exactly, but, yeah. exactly what I was going to say. Um, I'm, yeah, hot. But I thought... I don't, you know, I didn't want to, it's, it's, you know, it's warm and it's like, it's warm. No, I'm not complaining. It's more of a, it's an observation. That's what we do. We say things, we call it like we see it. So, Absolutely. Um, and uh, so you were saying that, um, uh, that you, okay, right. This is an absolute, <laughs> this is, this is classic fan club. This is an absolute clusterfuck of a, Interviews yeah. so fine. far. Fine. Oh no, just okay. So Dane, um, you're late. So um, where, 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 what have you been up to today? Today I've had to put some sh- uh, buy, put some outfits together, which I'm not always the best at because I'm doing some filming tomorrow. So I got to look the part. So I had to go and help put together some outfits, and then uh, various other admins relating to this. What are you filming? I'm filming an A to Z of cool stuff and i'm also going to be doing some tour promo as well so because you're um, on tour <laughs> i'm on tour. well i'm here I'm, I'm hoping to resume touring um yeah so my tour is kind of in in uh, what's what i'm looking for it's kind of in situ but i've not been doing tour dates uh because of uh, for, for, for um you know, because of the pancetta that we had over the last year and a half. <laughs> sure, sure. So, Can, yeah. i feel like we've got a little bit of unfinished business here um Dane, this mm-hmm. is Nathaniel. Yes. Yeah. Have you Hello, two Dane. Met, have you two I, met before? We've met. We've met sort of briefly yeah. in passing, but not properly. So it's lovely to speak to you, Dane. You too, Nathaniel. I find I feel like if I've only seen your face in passing, 
why is it burned into my consciousness every other night is the question. That well, a lot of people have to ask themselves that. But um, I don't. I I... <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's good to see you. It's good to see you. Good, good, good to see you too. Good to be seen. Everyone's looking well. So were you but saying now, then? So, you... We, so, we all, so we all know each other now. Yeah. yeah. And we can carry on. So I think what Nat was about to say was, <laughs> was um, uh, you, what were you going to say, Nat? I was going to say, so your tour, when you were saying because of the pandemic, that it's yes. been on pause, had you already started it? I had, yeah. I uh, started um, in early uh, 2020. And then uh, due to the uh, pandemic, I had to take some time off. And um, yeah, I'm hoping to resume in the latter part of the year uh, towards uh, autumn, winter, resume touring of my show. So um, yeah, I was in a little bit, I just I literally just finished the London leg, uh, luckily for me. So I was doing a show at Soho Theatre and then I finished the run on the Friday and then the Monday after we went on lockdown. So um, I was grateful to kind of be able to uh, perform it uh, before we locked down there. And uh, yeah, hoping uh, to return to that after surviving the pancreas. Have you have you changed have you changed the show? Uh, um, some of it I, I wanted to update um, because just for like some toppers and stuff, I think it's a bit more poignant to the material. But I think what was one of the great things about the show is that this show I would say has probably been my most unabashed and unapologetic show I've done, and a lot of the material can be contentious, but I think ended up being very much on the pulse of a lot of the more taboo topics we've had to discuss as a collective consciousness um over the last year or so so show being chocolate chip um deals with like the complex of anger and uh you know having very unapologetic conversations about racial inequality and discrimination and so yeah it was very uh it was pathetic after having a show like that to see what happened with uh the murder of derek uh with uh, george floyd at the hands of derek chauvin and then um the resurgence of the blm uh movement um across uh, globally kind of fell right in line with what i was discussing in the show so it just became a very uh yeah it just became a very poignant show kind of and despite the subject matter uh i got a very big payoff so happy to resume doing the same that's interesting so you feel like for so many people it feels like the world has kind of shifted slightly so it's kind of interesting that yours still feels on a pulse but do you mean that so it means like it's now has an added poignancy that it, that it had, didn't feel like you had before. So it sort of is richer now, you think? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, obviously the, the payoff when you're a comic is for people to identify with your observations anyway. But I think um, in this instance, this show just not just only transcended comedy audiences, but, you know, I had to kind of like break down the tenets of it to uh, like a lot of news stations. And yeah, it's just bit, the narrative has just allowed me to interact with people outside of comedy alone. And I think it's been used as a good basis for having what's been historically either an obscure or uh, non-existent conversation about race relations, particularly in the UK. So it it means that you're not like shining a light on something, but there's a conversation that's active and that you're kind of like saying, see, this is what we're talking about now. Yeah, basically. I I think what the main thing has been is that, um, you know, I don't have the monopoly on discussing race relations. and I don't think I've shone a light on any kind of new phenomenon, but... I think myself and other creatives have been able to bring this to the fore, whereas historically, uh, you know the mean the bird box being when the guy's forcing the dude's eyes to open or like the clockwork orange one? I mm. think we're at the stage now where people who've had the privilege of being able to ignore issues of racial inequality have now been forced to kind of confront them. 
Um, yeah. uh, run concurrently with this whole narrative now where people have said, it's not enough for you to say you're not racist. You have to actively be working to address any kind of, you know, discriminatory rhetoric or, you know, actively begin to dismantle the system in earnest. So, yeah, I think the show has definitely been a catalyst for that conversation, particularly amongst uh, British comedy circles. And um, I think it's going to happen on a larger scale um, socially anyway. So I think comedy is always good at kind of planting that seed of conversation when it comes to debut subjects anyway. Mm -hmm. And so you start up again on uh, September the 23rd in York. Yes. Were these dates that you already had or have you kind of like... Um, I've pushed, I've had to push them uh, further along the year. Um, I think some of them were the ones I already had existed, but I was, I think a large part of the tour dates I've had to rearrange were for some of the shows I was doing in continental Europe. So I was hoping to uh, reach uh, Denmark, home of the Danes, although none of them seem to know that much about me, despite me having their <laughs> names. I find very insulting. Surely if your name is Dane and you go to Denmark, you're automatically in the royal family. Whatever, we'll find out. Um, <laughs> Uh, I plan to do uh, Denmark, Finland, Estonia, uh, Belgium, and uh, the Netherlands. So hoping those can be, be rearranged because um, this is definitely a show that I would like to travel uh, as far reaching as possible. That's great. That's great. My tour got delayed. What year are we in now? 2021. My tour yeah. got delayed from 2020 to 2022. So I just thought, fuck it, I'll write a new one. But. Um, uh, but I just, I was just kind of, I felt like I had, mine was about mental health and I felt like I changed to the point where it was like, I, I don't want to talk about how I was in 2019. I want to move on. I mean, it's an observation and I feel like that's a really good move, Nick, because I find one of the problems with a lot of comics is this need to, they feel that, you know, artistic principle means you have to have some kind of inertia and stay where you are, but observations are supposed to be dynamic anyway and I personally like to take almost a status of four when I make an observations and by that token it's like leaves me open to learn a lot more like so it's never more of a know-it-all thing it's always amusing so when you're doing uh observations so yeah your, your, your mind state should change over that time anyway so I look forward to saying it Nick Hill thank you very much um well good you're doing a tour starts in September and goes on through October great brilliant so here we are we're on Nick and Nat's fan club uh, we would, I've got springs on my desk, so every time I bang it, it sounds like there's some sort of like um, explosion happening. Um, so what have you been a fan of this week, Dane? This week, I have been, this week in particular, I've been a fan of the box set uh, Lupin on Netflix. What's oh, Lupin? Yeah. So it's a uh, show which is uh, starring a comedian called Omar Sy, who's a uh, uh, Afro-French comedian. Mm -hmm. And it is about um, a, it's, and it's, a, it's basically a remake of the novels uh, about the gentleman burglar Arsenal Lupin. And it's been reimagined for a contemporary kind of French Parisian uh, remake. And it's basically about a uh, uh, title character is a man called Hassan Diop, who is a uh, cat burglar and um, confidence artist who is getting revenge for his father being falsely accused of theft and dying in prison at the hands of a very malevolent bourgeoisie man called uh, Monsieur Pellegrini. And um, I feel like that's enough to go on, but I think if you are someone that's into kind of like, you know, the Pink Panther or the Thomas Crown Affair, but also very much into kind of like uh, Ocean's Eleven, then you would definitely enjoy it. 
It's in France. Yeah. Oh, no, go on. Well, I was just going to say, um, we've never really nailed the format of this show, but you're, you're, you're the second guest of our third season, right? And, um, and I thought maybe we'd sort of like, you know, try and be professional with you and get the actual questions out. Um, Natalie says that we're nailing it today. You didn't, you didn't know that you were going to talk about that, did you? Uh, no, but I knew we were talking about favourite films and shows and stuff, and so... Yeah, so you're kind of like... Okay, okay so good. I just wanted to give you an honest answer, Nick. I can't lie to that face, Nick! Nah, no. I'm a lovable rogue. Um, what were you going to say, Nathaniel? I was going to say, in France, like Arsène Lupin, he's like a kind of... He's almost like a sort of Sherlock Holmes, isn't he, over there? He's sort of like a... It's one of these kind of characters that's constantly being, like, rebooted and redone again and again. And there's that... Um, there's a manga, isn't there? Lupin the Third, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's what, is what... Lu... what is Lupin? Is that rabbit? He's like, is he? That might be. No, it's Lapin, isn't it? Well, is Lapin a rabbit? Yeah, Lapin is a rabbit. I think so in what's French. Lupin? A wolf. It might be. He oh. might be the wolf. That might be his name. Like, uh, you might be right. Oh, would that. Oh, would that be Lycan if it's a wolf? Maybe it's uh, Lycan. Maybe it's Lycan. Oh. Yeah. Okay. What did you guys? What the hell's happened to us? Uh, it's been indoors for a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird because I didn't take that opportunity to better myself in any way. <laughs> oh dear! Never read one book. Listen to two. Um, right. That's, that's almost the same when you think about it. Yeah, I suppose it is. Yeah. Well, two audio books equals one book. That's the rules. Do you think? Yeah, it depends how much... Oh, do you know what, though? I was going to say, it depends how much you listen, because when you're reading, you actually take it all in, right? But sometimes I'm on autopilot when I read, and I have to reread pages because I've just sort of, like, glided my eyes down it. It is, and that's what I mean. You need, you need some kind of variety or change in tone, and that's what you get from an audio book, I guess. Or maybe books should kind of, like, I don't know, they should probably, like, glow up. Just to, if, you, if you look sleepy. I'm sure someone's working on that. Well, that's like, now what you're describing is a Kindle. Oh. Oh, yeah. If, so, you'd, come, if you'd had that thought, Dane, 15 years ago, you could be a billionaire. No. But then would I be happy because my wife would have left me for a regular guy? <laughs> sure. 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 Um, you like, married? You stayed home. You would have been with me, and I wouldn't be with this regular guy who works at Subway. And I'd be like, I was busy making you a fortune. What do you mean? <laughs> but are you married? No, no. I'm just. No. I ran Amazon and I was Jeff Bezos. I was it, was an, it was an imaginary wife. I mean, she doesn't like that term, but fine. We've all got them. <laughs> so, especially, especially at Fan Club. <laughs> at Fan Club HQ. <laughs> <laughs> we all got imaginary wives or husbands um so uh, right so your favorite films tell us about what your favorite films are so my favorite films uh include many i'd say the last film i really liked uh was avengers uh, endgame because mm. uh, i'm a big comic book fan and uh i thought it was a very epic piece of cinema in that respect it was just nice to finally see uh, people who have taken the time to actually work on special effects and on backstories and source material for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I think it just came together very well. I mean, I know a lot of it can be very kitsch and very predictable, 
but you know, Disney run the studio. So what do you guys want? You want to sell stuff or not? But I very much <laughs> enjoy it. I think um, it's, for me, it's very easy watching. I think whenever I get on a flight and I'm like, oh, what should I watch? I'll be like, well, this will kill three hours, gener- guaranteed. So it's one of those films in my life that I really enjoy. Um, so yeah, Avengers Endgame is one of my favorite films. Um, so uh, how, how does it compare to Infinity War? Um, I would say most people might argue it's not as, uh, maybe not as good as Infinity War, because I think that built a lot of suspense and obviously the show kind of comes together like in a neat package, very Disney style with the ending for, of Endgame. But I think it's uh, just as good. I Personally, I, maybe I, I had different criteria for my uh, comic book adaptations. So um, I felt like the casting was very good. I like a high volume of heroes in my pictures and I think um, Avengers uh, Endgame did a very good job of doing that. And, you know, despite the fact that it did have nondescript, like ambiguous enemies, CGI enemies, it didn't have a sky beam, which is kind of novel. And um, yeah, I think I had some level of trepidation about the idea that, you know, for example, Robert Downey Jr. wasn't going to play Tony Stark anymore. Chris Evans wasn't going to do Captain America. But I think the way that they brought the show to an end, I'd be very comfortable watching them. I think it's a great, I think it's a great, I think Endgame is, a, is as good an ending as you could hope for. Um, yeah. And I think Infinity War is the best. I mean, I'm not a huge Marvel fan, uh, Marvel movie fan, but I think Infinity War was the best. But it didn't have, out of the entire series, but it didn't have the burden of having to wrap up 25 films. Mm. Yeah. Whereas, whereas you go, Endgame could have just kind of like ticked all the boxes, mm. but it had its own story, its own adventure, and it wrapped everything up in kind of a satisfying way. So yeah. I think that, yeah. I think-, I think that's what they do really cleverly. I think the the sort of strength of like Infinity War was that at the end of it, you realise that it is because it because it seemed to have to introduce so many characters. It, I thought it was going to be unfocused, and it was only at the end when you go, "Oh, the the main character is the villain, and he's the it's his story, and he yeah. wins at the end." So he gets to be like you sort of go, "Oh, right, he's the, the he's the focus of this film." So he's he's like the hero in all the other films. You have to see it from his point of view, and that's the end of the film. He's done his he's had his big adventure, and that's the end. Yes. I mean, and, and, I mean, even the uh, narrative for Thanos is like another decade in the making as well. And I think that was part of the pressure for Endgame as well, is the fact that, you know, as well as um, trying to end te- the telling of these stories, like it represents the, you know, I guess the kind of zenith point of a very large undertaking on behalf of Marvel Studios. It's been a long time. And I'd mean, say the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the first of its kind to have so many crossovers and having cameos and guests appear and having stories that build over the course of 10 years has not really been an endeavor that people have done as a part of a franchise for a very long time especially when it's so many other different spin-offs so having that all come together and for a coherent story um was a big risk and um, but I think they did a very good in the demand for that and i feel like over the last decade uh, audiences palettes have very much been expanded to uh, take on board the comic book and graphic novel adaptations i would probably say it's somewhat of a saturated, maybe approaching a saturated market now, but I think I was glad that I got to see it the first time around when it was mm. still cool and still relatively novel as a concept. So, Do you think they're in trouble now, now that you kind of think going forward? Do you think when they're, they're, they're kind of rolling out this next lot of films, does it feel like they've now 
finished with their two big guns and their you've got no Iron Man and no Captain America, do you think they will be desperately trying to have more kind of iconic heroes that they can replace them with? Or do you think they will just adapt and it will they'll keep rolling on? They've got it quite tough because as well as obviously, uh, I think Scarlett Johansson, uh, well, she's returning for Black Widow, but Javier, losing Chris and uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. would be a hit. But also Chad is gone as well. Mm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that is quite tough. I think it depends on what their objectives are. I think if they want to continue to have the output of making very good adaptations of comic book culture, then, you know, I think they definitely have the capabilities within the studio to do so. I would say, you know, because I've seen like the trailers for like Black Widow and Shang-Chi, I think they're amazing and um, definitely we'll be watching those. I think it really just comes down to how long, uh, well now that I guess the whole adaptation of comic books is now a part of popular culture, I guess it's how long that, that resonates there itself because, um, you know, people have seen the, the uh, efficacy of it. So, you know, you've seen the DC uh, Cinematic Universe is continuing the pace as well. Um, different groups like Varying Comics and Image and it's like it's the second it's the second scramble I've seen for adaptations of uh, graphic novels or comic books that's actually gone well. Um, but yeah, I think it just guess it comes down to the level of interest that um, audiences kind of have because that can definitely shift. Um, things might go you know back to vampires again, and it might be a bit more difficult to to realize the same level of success. Um, but that being said, they've got Blade Two, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> so you are a big comic book fan, then you've got so. Yeah, pretty, pretty big. I mean, I kind of, I was around, going to around the 90s and stuff, and, you know, most of the, uh, the storylines that we saw in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I'm aware of the ones that they are kind of based on. Um, but at the same time, I'm not the kind of person that if there is not a direct adaptation or interpretation of the source material, I'm not the kind of person that's going to write a strongly worded letter or send uh, offensive tweets to Kevin Feige. So... <laughs> So were you were you reading comics as a kid, or were you are you still kind of reading comics? Um, I, I started reading as a kid, but uh, back then economically I couldn't just read Marvel at my leisure. So it was definitely me reading what I could get my hands on. So I had my a neighbor who used to give me like old copies of Two Thousand AD, which mm-hmm. I was very much into. That's where Judge Dredd comes from. So I was aware of that before it was adapted. Um, and the ABC Warriors. So it was also in the Judge Dredd motion picture. Then. Um, Kind of my experience when I got into reading mainly Marvel comics was more on the side of mutants. So I'd be into like X-Men and X-Force and also mm-hmm. been metaphors for racial discrimination in America and stuff. So I kind of gravitated towards that a lot more than the typical heroes in the Marvel universe. So I would have read more X-Men and more of those crossover lines. I was talking more like Deadpool than I would have read Avengers. And then I would say, yeah, around late 90s when comic books took a dip, I kind of... Before that, I was looking at some of the more independent publishers like Image Comics. So that was kind of co-founded by the creator of Deadpool. And so comic like Spawn, for example, is one of the comics. So I've read that quite a bit. And then I'd say, yeah, around the late 90s, early noughties, the comic books took a rather big decline. And yeah, my interest kind of waned. And there is, the main reason for that is Ben Affleck. <laughs> what, the, you, you lost interest? Yeah, yeah I'm, just, I'm just saying like, it's Ben Affleck's fault. He knows he shouldn't have been Daredevil, but he did it anyway. And then <laughs> it wasn't good enough. He decided to bring his girlfriend to play Elektra with little to no martial art experience. And in a world of post-Matrix with the Wachowski twins, no excuse for American no actors to have no martial arts training. There's no excuse. 
I'm not falling for this wire work. And so I think between Ben Affleck and Joel Schumacher's remakes of the Batman films, I kind of like went after them for a while. And um, what did you think of the, Did you see the Spawn film? Yeah, I did. Um, I thought it was okay. It was okay. Um, I think there were a few changes to the original story, but I think for the most part, it was pretty good. I think Spawn is a... I think the only thing that let Spawn down was that it maybe was a bit before its time. I mm. think it had been able to take advantage of the kind of box set and knowing how that new, the new structure of streaming services work. There's a lot of stories that would have served better to be retold in that fashion mm -hmm. rather than... Um, rather than just going straight to the movie. I think there would have been a little bit more time for that as well. But I, what did you yeah. think, Nick? Of Spawn, I was a huge Spawn fan. Um, I That was virtually the only comic book that I'd buy because, I, you know, that's all I could afford. And... Um, Todd McFarlane uh, stepped something into my school, Nick Helm. Say that again. Todd McFarlane, the creator of Spawn, he stepped something into my school and so they used to give me, like, three comic books and stuff. Oh, wow. Uh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, um, I, 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 that's, that's really cool. I really loved, I really loved Spawn. Um, and I got every single issue of them up until I think the film came out and then, uh, and then I, st that's <laughs> I what made you lose interest. It's, it was a bit like, it was a bit like, um, what was it? Revenge of the Sith. And I came out of Revenge of the Sith and I was like, cool. I don't, I don't like Star Wars anymore. <laughs> and it, but it just sort of like it just freed up my bank account do you know what i mean it's like i never have to spend another penny on star wars and after yeah. after the but then i've never seen the animated spawn tv series the, the animated series is pretty good actually but yeah the, 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 the film did kind of let it down i think it was kind of a cgi mishmash but i'm just trying to be like well there wasn't the same level of investment in adaptation that there is now, but Spawn, like the animation in that comic was some of the best ever. Like Todd, uh, people that don't know, Todd McFarlane designed the new Spider-Man costume with the big yes. eyes. Yeah. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean. I, I, think, like, I used to love Todd McFarlane's artwork. I thought, yeah. yeah, it was amazing. He was like un, unmatched. I mean, mm. yeah, between, it was like him, Jim, Jim Lee, who did uh, the original X-Men volume two, Mm -hmm. um, like one of the biggest selling uh, comics of all time. But he then he went it. off and didn't Jim Lee do Gen 13 over on uh, uh, Image? They Scott Campbell did Gen 13 and Jim Lee did uh, Stormwatch and um, Wildcats. Wildcats, right. although technically he would have create or co-created Gen 13, I think. Yes, that's had... yeah. We're, all, we're all from the same fun. era of growing up reading these same comics, yeah, you yeah. see. We, well, you know what we're talking about. I'm playing it down, if anything. I worked in a comic yeah, shop for 14 years. I don't um, know. But it very much grew up in that era of reading comics and that kind of those Marvel artists that formed Image and things, exactly that kind of era. And I noticed even on your like favourite TV shows, you had Invincible, which, again, is another sort oh, of early 2000 oh, era. Good. Yeah, so, so good. And I think, yeah, it was would have been something that I kind of managed to get like a brief look at, but um, I probably got more into it after seeing the series. But I think it's so good and... Uh, yeah, Mark Millar is, I mean, the guy doesn't miss when it comes to these adaptations. And oh, that one's thinking, isn't it? That's Robert Kirkman, I think, Invincible. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark, oh, sorry, I'm thinking of uh, Walking Dead. Oh, Walking Dead, Walking Dead. Yeah, Walking Dead is Kirkman as well. So they're both, so the guy who did Walking Dead also did Invincible. Oh, that explains a lot. <laughs> Invincible is really good, though. It is really, really good. Um, and, um, I don't know what any of that is. Invincible has just started, I think. It's on Amazon, and it's basically like a cartoon adaptation 
of the I haven't seen the adaptation of the comics, but supposedly it's very kind of faithful to yeah, the comic right. books. Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, speaking of Amazon, right, we haven't got much longer, right? But just to sum this up, we've got your list of films, right? Um, you've got Coming to America and mm-hmm. Casino, right? Now, why Casino and not Goodfellas? Mm-hmm. And what did you make of Coming to America uh, that came out on Amazon last year, this year? Last uh, year. I think it was, was it last? Was it last year? This year's gone by very quickly. It might have been earlier this year. I think it might have been this year. So the first question is a good question. Why Casino and not Goodfellas? I think the main difference for me is, um, I think it might be just be the soundtrack. The soundtrack for Casino. Sure. I think I think Casino kind of spans the way it kind of spans decades and the way it uses like visualization and soundscaping to kind of represent that. Is done very well, and also even though I know Lorraine Brayco is amazing in Goodfellas, I think Sharon Stone's performance in Casino is just Sharon Stone, yeah, she's incredible. Um, that kind of makes a difference for me. Also, you get a really good sort of sleazy James Woods performance in Casino. Yes, also excellent performance as well. Yeah, um, and, and it's sort of like okay, those characters. What happened to Robert De Niro? He went to prison at the end of Goodfellas, but it's kind of like you get the continuing adventures of kind of. Uh, I was going to call him Joe Pasquale, Joe Pesci. (laughs) (laughs) Joe Joe Pasquale. (laughs) To see Joe Pasquale recreate those same things. That would be amazing. The opening of Goodfellas with uh, Joe Pasquale. (laughs) 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 With with the kitchen knife going into the boot of the car. Fuck it up. Is Pasquale Italian? I guess so. Probably is an Italian name, isn't it? There is no reason why he shouldn't be doing that. No, No, absolutely. Exactly. Um, and so what did you make of uh, Coming to America? I think Coming to America, I think I set my, I, I was very realistic about my expectations. And so I wasn't expecting much. And I think um, Kenya Barish, the work he did was pretty good. But I think, yeah, I, I wasn't expecting much. And I think they made it a point of principle, probably more to please fans rather than create a sequel. Sure. And that was very clear in what I saw. So I think they just wanted to please fans rather than play a sequel. But I think the cast, the original cast, have aged pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I tell you, I think you're absolutely right. I've not thought of it like that. But every time there was something, and I'm not yeah. into this sort of thing, but every time there was something that I recognised from the first one, uh, I, it made me feel great. Yeah. <laughs> and That's so it. I really... I really enjoyed the sequel. Of course, the people that have the people that have aged best in that film are all the (laughs) barbershop characters who, by rights, shouldn't be alive anymore. (laughs) None of them. Like you go, well, how old are they now? Alive at all? Like there is no way they should be alive. But uh, something in the barber side, but they didn't quite well. I think um, I wasn't sure about Wesley Snipes' cameo, but he did pretty well in there. Oh, Um, I think. Did you see? um, Did you see Dolomite? Yes, I did. I liked that a lot. Yeah, well, because they got on so well, because Wesley Snipes wasn't meant to be in Coming to America. It was meant to be Eddie Murphy doing another character. Oh, okay. But then they were like, hey, we should get Wesley Snipes in to do it. I think think the casting in Coming to America, the only thing that made me let them down was just to not really take into account the expanse of comedy globally in that there are African comics from the continent that probably would have slotted into certain roles very, very well. People are aware of like, you know, not just Michael Blackson, but there's comedians like, you know, uh, Bucket Mouth, or even, you know, like a Loisa Goda or even a Trevor Noah would have not been 
out of place in a show that's depicted about taking place on the continent. Um, mm. But other than that, yeah, I feel like I just, I, uh, and also, where the hell was Lisa's sister? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it just was too weird that she wasn't around at all. Um, and also, I thought that Semi ended up with um, Akeem's original betrothed wife, and that didn't seem to work out either. But, um, you know, I think these are just like big fanboy questions where I'm like, what happened here? And what happened sure. to Sal? Did he ever do a franchise? Do they do Deliveroo? Like, you may not need to know that stuff, but I do. I think you're asking for more than they were willing to give. <laughs> At this stage, but depending on, I'm not sure how well it did, but if it's gone very well, they may need to talk about box set. Sure. Sure. And by box set, you mean a third film? Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah, cool. Good. Um, well, we've come to we're coming to we're coming to the end. We've got time to play uh, better or worse with you. I'm going to hand you over to now, uh, just just these are some of the questions for the new format that I've come up with. One of them is, have you ever met your hero? That's quite a good question, right? Yeah, that's good. Hero, that's a good question. And uh, uh, what's your favourite album? Because we normally say, what's your favourite song? And so, what's your favourite album? Is a good question. What's your earliest film memory? Have you ever met your hero? And what have you been a fan of? I think we could get through an hour with those, Nat, and yeah. Dane seems to like them, so maybe we should ask him those sorts of questions. Um, so, <laughs> handing, handing, over to, handing over to you, Nathaniel, better or worse? Okay, Dane, this, this game is called Better or Worse, and you have to say whether the next person on the list is better or worse than the person before it, based entirely on my opinions to score points. Okay. Beginning like with Charlize Theron. But is Sarah Jessica Parker better or worse than Charlize Theron, based on my opinions? I would say she is worse. She is worse. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne, better or worse than Sarah Jessica Parker? It's got to be better. Uh, Morpheus. Better. Close. Daniel Radcliffe, better or worse than Lawrence Fishburne? Worse. Oh, that's a tough one. Um... He is worse. He is worse. Yeah. He's worse, but I mean, he's done some good stuff as well. Sure, not. It could be a high card, Nick. You know the game. I just think Bruce it's Lee. easy. To, I just think it's easy to dismiss him because of Harry Potter. I've not dismissed him. No, I dismissed him. Just he, saying, he, I think. Listen, that, it's the same thing with James Gandolfini and Daniel Radcliffe. They are so good; they will forever be enamoured in their in their most known roles. Nick, it's just the way the world works. That's how sure. it works. The Swiss Army Man is great. Go on. Come on, Nathaniel. Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee. Better or worse than Daniel Radcliffe? (laughs) (laughs) Better than Daniel Radcliffe. Better. Yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Better or worse than Bruce Lee? Worse than Bruce Lee. Worse. I think he has to be worse. Mariah Carey. Better or worse than Arnold Schwarzenegger? Ooh, that's fun. Hmm. I'm going to probably risk being wrong, but I'm going to say better than answering. Worse. Uh, Worse. Uh, Jim Carrey. In my head, I've got the thing. I've got when Mariah Carey took a bath in MTV Cribs with the towel. Okay. (laughs) I I remember that scene. I was thinking that would probably make her worse, but, you know, still want to risk it. But, yeah, fair enough. All right. Uh, Jim Carrey. Better or worse than Mariah Carey? Better. Better. Jim Broadbent. Better or worse than Jim Carrey? Better. 
people always asking me this one. Uh, <laughs> um, worse? Worse. High card. Jim Belushi, better or worse than Jim Broadbent? Oh. Worse? Worse. John Belushi, better or worse than Jim Belushi? Better. 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 I think that might be a nine. Is that a nine? It's nine! a nine! You got nine! You got nine, which means in the grand scheme of things, you know, you're, you're better than average. But in this season, there's only been one other guest, and it was Carl Gass from Tenacious D, and he got a six. So you're three better than him. You're three better than half of Tenacious D. So that's saying something. I'm going to take that. I'm coming <laughs> for you too, Mr. Jack Black. Okay. So we've been talking to Dane Baptiste. He's on tour, uh, starting in New York on September the 23rd with uh, his new tour, Chocolate Chip Tour. And uh, we've just talked to him uh, and you've just listened to it. So he's still here as well. So I don't know why I'm doing it. Like, anyway, look after yourselves, guys. We're nearly out of it. And, um, uh, and then you can go back to, you know, um, booing me on stage. <laughs> Thanks very much, guys. Say goodbye, Dane. Bye. Say goodbye, Nathaniel. Goodbye. Bye. See you next week, guys, unless we have a week off. Bye.